Good evening, church. How's everyone doing this evening? How's everyone doing this evening? There we go. That's much better. So uh, I'm excited to be with you all this evening as I have the privilege of doing almost every single Sunday evening. And uh, I'm also excited because this is a passage and a topic that isn't necessarily uh, one that a pastor gets excited to preach, uh, but it's one that I, I hope that as we move through God's word, you will see that it's not uh, uncomfortable and as scary of a topic as it seems on the outset, and that is this, God's judgment, okay? So you're like, wait, 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 I just rolled into church, and all of a sudden, it's God's judgment. Like, I told you, it's not excited to preach. None of you here are sitting there saying, I need to find which church is preaching on judgment this Sunday, and I need to go there, Right? But what I want you to see in this passage this evening is that it's not something to be uncomfortable with. It's not something to be afraid of. In fact, when you look into God's justice and his judgment and you see how justice rolls down, you also see that grace rises up. That's the title of the sermon, Justice Rolls Down, But Grace Rises Up. I want to jump right into our passage because uh, there's a lot to work through and it's exciting to move through it together with this very interesting encounter that Abraham has with God. So if you were with us last week, you know that God comes to Abraham and Sarah. He gives them this precise time for the fulfillment of the promise that he gave them that they have a kid, they have a child, a son. They've been waiting 25 years and God says, in one year, I'm going to fulfill the promise. They struggled with that, but God reaffirms by his grace his love for them, and he's faithful to that promise. Right after that encounter, Abraham goes on a walk with God to kind of send him out with the other two men who are identified as angels. So they're leaving the camp, and that is where we pick up our story. Genesis chapter 18, it's the second half of the chapter that we were in last week. Just a few verses to read together. Here's what God's word says, starting in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How? By doing righteousness justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said, Abraham is walking with God and the, the, the two men who are identified as angels are kind of a little bit ahead. And God invites Abraham into this conversation about two particular cities, two very famous cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we know that God is inviting Abraham into conversation because in verse 17, he says, Shall I share, shall I tell Abraham what I am about to do? Here's the translation. Have you ever had a friend say to you, I don't know if I should tell you this, but... What is your response? No, no, no. Now you have to tell me. You can't tell me, I don't know if I should tell you this, and then just stop there. You're inviting me into the conversation. That's exactly what God is doing with Abraham. He's piquing his interest. He's grabbing his attention, and he's inviting him into this conversation 
about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, he shares why he's bringing him into this conversation. Because Abraham is called to be the one who will lead not only his family, but lead a great nation. And through this nation, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God wants to use Abraham as a leader to bless other people. And God says it's very important that Abraham understands what is the way of God. What is the way of the Lord? And he says, to do justice and righteousness. So what God wants Abraham to understand is what divine justice is and how important and powerful righteousness is. So this is why God is inviting Abraham into this conversation about Sodom and Gomorrah. And as it begins to unfold in conversation, God shares that what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah is that the outcry in the city is so great that it's left the city walls and it's come to God. Now, God is looking into it. Now, the word outcry means cries of the oppressed. And the book of Ezekiel tells us what the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were like, how evil and cruel and wicked they were. So here's what the book of Ezekiel says. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned with God, and they oppressed the poor. You can kind of picture the city, right? Arrogant, overfed, they were unconcerned about God, and they oppressed the poor. So the poor have been oppressed so severely in Sodom and Gomorrah that the cries are coming out of the city, and God is looking into it. And it also says that their sin is grave, that their sin is deserving of the grave. It's deserving of death. Now, when you look into this, you begin to feel that tension, right? The tension of what is God going to do? How is he going to engage? What does God's judgment look like in this situation? Obviously, justice is needed because there's great oppression of the poor. So Abraham speaks up. Verse 23, here's what Abraham says to God. Abraham drew near to God and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And that's a great question, right? He comes to God with this question. Okay, I know that you're looking into this, these two evil, cruel cities who are oppressing the poor, and their sin is deserving of the grave of death, but are you going to sweep away? Are you going to wipe out the righteous or the innocent alongside of the wicked? Abraham continues. He says in verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? So he comes to God with this question. Okay, God, are you really going to take the innocent? Are you really going to take the righteous and just give them the same fate as the wicked? What if there are 50? Now, these are large cities. So this is already Abraham's taking a very large step of faith here. What about 50? 50 righteous people. If you find 50, will you spare, the word there is lift up or forgive. Will you spare everyone? Will you forgive everyone if there's 50 righteous? You see, what Abraham is, is working through in this conversation with God is, God, I understand that you need to uphold justice, but how much do you value righteousness? How important is righteousness? Could the righteousness of 50 people forgive these evil, cruel cities? He brings this question. It feels almost like uh, Abraham is accusing God. And it feels even more like that in the next verse. Here's what it says. Far be it from you to do such a thing. 
to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, as I said, when you read this, it feels like an accusation. But actually, when you read the Hebrew, the Hebrew makes it very clear that what Abraham is actually doing is he's praying. So he has this this disposition of pleading with God in prayer on behalf of the city. He's intervening. He's standing in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah, these wicked, evil, cruel, oppressive cities, and God, who is looking into these cities to see if it's going to require not his justice being upheld through judgment. Now, Abraham is familiar with these cities. Why? Because his nephew Lot lives in Sodom. So Lot lives in Sodom with his family. And you can see now maybe part of the reason why he's really advocating for these cities to be spared, to be forgiven. What if there's 50 righteous? He's pleading to God. And he's actually, attrib- he's actually praying to God according to his character. The translation of that last verse I just read is more like this. God, I know that you are just, and I know that you need to uphold justice, and you are the great judge. However, how much do you value righteousness? The righteous surely cannot have the same fate as the wicked. So God responds in verse 27. It says this, 26, And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place. If I find 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place. And so Abraham, you know, he's feeling good because he went 50. Now that's a, that's a big step of faith, but he lowers the bar even further. So he goes back to God in prayer. God, what if you find 45? God agrees. Okay, okay, God, what if you find 40 righteous? God agrees. 30? God agrees. 20? Remember, these are two large cities, evil, cruel, oppressive, 20 righteous. God agrees. Then he goes, God, what if you find 10? Probably the size of Lot's family. God agrees. Verse 32, God says this, the second half, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. So he comes to God, pleading with God for these evil, cruel cities that, God, if you just find 10 righteous in the city, will you spare everyone? Will you forgive everyone? Will you lift up the cities? Because there's 10 righteous. And God agrees. You see, God is teaching Abraham that he will uphold justice, that God is a God where, ju- where judgment is required at times, but he values righteousness so much that even if there's just 10 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, he will spare both cities. I want to stop there. Two major lessons here that stem from this passage that I want us to work through. The first is God's divine justice and judgment. We've been working on that. And then secondly, as I've been saying, the power of righteousness, the importance of righteousness. So let's talk, start with the easy one first, judgment, justice. You know, not a big deal. Divine judgment, divine justice. Obviously, justice is needed. Things are wrong. They need to be set right. People are being oppressed and there needs to be intervention. But when we read passages like this, I know how it feels because I've worked through this myself. You read passages where 
God is looking into a situation and God's divine justice requires divine judgment and it causes us to feel uncomfortable. We feel tension. I don't know if I like this. Now, it helps a little bit here in the passage because when you read that there's an outcry and you come to understand that the city is full of oppressive people, that the leadership of the city is oppressing the poor and they're cruel and they're evil and they're arrogant, you're kind of like, okay, I'm kind of okay with that. You know, like if people are like really evil and really guilty and they're oppressors, we're okay with them getting judgment. But the the tension we feel is what Abraham is praying. He's like, well, what about the righteous? What about the innocent? What about those in the city that are actually being oppressed? Are they going to have the same fate? So we struggle with not the fact that the guilty will be punished, but we struggle with the fact that maybe people that are less guilty, they're just sinful. Like us. They suffer the same fate? How could that be, God? How, how can sin, even just a little, equal death? Okay with oppressors getting judgment. Well, you can't sweep away everybody, God. We feel that tension, and it brings up really two fundamental questions that I think every Christian has to work through. Maybe you're working through at this point in your spiritual journey. I've certainly worked through these before, and that's these two questions. The first one is this. Does God judge? And on what conditions does God judge? have to work through that. Does God judge? Does divine justice really require divine judgment? And then how does God judge? And the reason I think we feel a tension with judgment and justice as it pertains to God in particular is that we've pitted things together that are not meant to be at odds. We become very simplistic in our thinking. So, for instance, we feel like love and justice are two separate things, and we feel like mercy and judgment are two separate things. They're kind of competing for one another. But if you really work it through, it can't be the case. For instance, if you know that there's an injustice, something is wrong that needs to be made right, and you have the ability to intervene to bring about justice, and you ignore it and overlook it, is that loving? See, love wants to uphold justice, make wrong things right. And on the other side, if there's nothing to punish, then there's nothing to forgive. You see, if there's nothing to judge, then there's nothing to show mercy towards. They're not at odds. Actually, mercy and judgment work hand in hand. Love and justice work hand in hand. But we feel a deep tension in our soul around the concept of judgment. And it's because we have been kind of nurtured in a society where we have lost this ability to work through the tension of these things. Primarily because our view of human nature has changed over decades because of the loss of absolute value. We don't believe things are absolutely true anymore. We believe that things are true for some people and other things are true for other people, but there's nothing that's truly right and truly good, so it makes it really hard to advocate for justice because how do you know if you're making something wrong right if you can even agree if it's, if it's right or wrong? How can you show mercy if there's a culture of, of never believing that anything is in fact absolutely wrong or right. This loss of absolute value has affected us. And one of the ways that that this has come to be the case, I was reading this thought experiment by a Harvard Harvard philosopher named John Rawls. 
And he has this thought experiment that speaks about how to create a just and good society. So what he advocates for is that you can actually create a just and a good society without anyone holding to any moral values or religious beliefs. That you can create a very just and good society for everybody by just using reasonable self-interest. And here's what he says. I want you to imagine a group of people, okay? You can imagine us in this room. Those of you online too, you can join. Have all of us in this room, we come together and our goal is to build and design a just and good society. But, he says, everyone gets a veil of ignorance. That's what he calls it. Meaning, none of us know who or what we will be in that society. We don't know if we're rich, if we're poor. We don't know if we're male or female. We don't know our race. We don't know our background. We don't know our level of education. We don't know our intellectual capacity. We don't know our talents. We know nothing about ourselves. He says that if everyone had that veil of ignorance, just by using reasonable self-interest, you could design and create a society that was just and good for everyone because everyone knew that there's a chance they could be regarded as weak. And so they want to design a society that does not disadvantage the weak. Sounds really smart. He went to Harvard. (laughs) But there's a lot of problems with it. See, one of the problems is that he believes that you don't have to have hold to any absolute values in order to design a just and good society. You can just come in neutral and design something based upon your own rationality and reason. The problem is, that's not a real thing. Every one of us builds and designs and engages in relationships. Everything we do is based upon our convictions. It's based upon our moral beliefs and our religious beliefs. You cannot separate those. You can't just be neutral because you have a veil of ignorance. It's not possible. None of us are neutral. We all have different opinions. We all feel differently about certain things. In fact, if we were to design a society together, it would be a hot mess. You know, because some of us in the room would say, I want to design a society where it elevates personal personal initiative, where everyone has the opportunity, the free opportunity to make something of themselves. And so I want free markets. I want low regulations. I want little government. This is the kind of society that would be good for everyone. And another person may raise their hand and say, "Um, I don't like that society. Like, I'm okay. I like personal initiative, but I'm fearful that some people that make it to the top, that become powerful, will use their power to disadvantage people to maintain more power. And so I want more government. I want more regulations. I want support programs for the poor. So you can have a veil of ignorance and come at two completely different places to design a society. Why? Because we're all operating off of what we believe is true, and it's absolutely true for us. And so if you believe that there's no absolute truth, you really have nothing to stand on, and it just becomes a hot mess. You probably heard this term before that we're living in a culture or in a a worldview that's known as postmodernism. And postmodernism is actually fading. We're morphing into something else. In the future, postmodernism is a very complicated worldview that upholds relative truth. And I like to say that really what postmodernism does is it looks to deconstruct truth claims. So anytime anyone asserts something is true, it creates in us this, this kind of like 
tension or this itch to say, I don't know, let me deconstruct that. We don't take anything at face value. And there could be some really good in this, right? Because some of us have been nurtured and have been taught things as true that are not true and are in fact harmful in our lives. And we need to work through. We need to deconstruct from those. But it can be very harmful. Because what it's created in many of us, whether or not we know it, is that we come to things like Genesis chapter 18 and we're working with God's judgment and divine justice and we feel a tension and instead of wrestling with hard truth, we deconstruct from it. Many of us, we deconstruct from truth instead of wrestle with it. See, we're meant to wrestle through the tension because we believe things are absolutely true. And when you believe something is absolutely true and there is, an, there is absolute good and you work to wrestle through hard truth, you actually have the ability to come to understand divine justice and divine judgment and actually to advocate for a world that could be just and good for all people. See, if you contrast Thomas Rawls with someone else who was seeking to build a just and good society, you have a very different outcome because this person I'm about to speak about had strong footing. That's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. See, when, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was advocating for the removal of segregation and for, the, and for value and equality to be placed upon everyone. He wasn't coming to society, wasn't coming to America leading the civil rights movement and saying, hey, listen, um, I don't think it's practical and good for everyone if we have segregation. I'm using reasonable self-interest. Let's kind of move away from that. I, it's not good for me, so I don't, th I don't think it's good for you. Do we, can we agree on that? What did he say? Segregation was sin. It was evil. It was injustice. It needed to be made right. His whole mission of justice and righteousness was founded upon things that he believed were absolutely true. Listen to this quote. You can see it coming out of everything that he ever says, but listen to this quote. He says, we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. You see what he's claiming to be absolutely true. He believes that God has created everyone in his image and everyone is deserving of equality, of dignity, of respect, of honor. Regardless of who you are, you are deserving of that. And when anyone is, is looked down upon or is oppressed because of how God has made them, that is an injustice. That's why he is time and time again referring to Amos. He time and time again refers to Amos, which says the following. It says, justice rolls down. Justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. He's tying together the very thing that Abraham is coming to understand, that justice and righteousness go hand in hand. They're not to be separated. You see, Abraham here is understanding that God values righteousness so much that even for ten... His justice could be satisfied, and he would spare everyone. He'd forgive everyone. 
Every single time he lowers the bar from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10, God is teaching Abraham, wow, God, you really value righteousness that so, so much? The power of righteousness is so beyond my imagination that just 10 people could save two corrupt, evil cities? So that's the power of righteousness. And here, if you read further in the story, you know that Abraham's pleading prayer for Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't work. Sorry. Divine justice required God's divine judgment because there were no righteous people in the city. Now, God is still merciful, and he rescues Lot and his family, those that are seeking after the Lord. So there is a prayer that God honors Abraham's prayer. But just because the prayer doesn't work for Sodom, it does reveal what saves. That's exactly what God is teaching Abraham in his faith, and he's teaching us the power of righteousness, how God's divine justice can be upheld, can be satisfied because of the power of righteousness. See, every single time he gets to a new number, what we see is that God's will to save is stronger than his will to judge. His will to save is stronger than his will to judge. And we know that because God keeps agreeing to every new number. But he stops at 10. Do you ever feel, do you ever feel like that's, that's kind of an abrupt stop? Like you went from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10, and then he's like, okay, I'm out. We did it. 10's good. We don't know why. Why does, why does Abraham stop at 10? Maybe he thinks, surely Lot and all of my you know, nephews and nieces and everyone that's there, there's at least 10. Maybe he stops. Maybe he's like, I don't want to push the limit. If I go any further, maybe God revokes the whole thing. But he stops at 10. See, this story is begging. The climax is begging for one more request from Abraham. God, okay, would you save the whole city for just one righteous? Just one. But he doesn't go there. Why? Why? I don't know. But I know that what God is showing him is something that's absolutely true that he proves to the rest of human history. And that is this. That the path through the mountain of God's judgment is on the back of the righteous. The path through the mountain of God's judgment, because in order for wrong things to be made right, there needs to be judgment. But the path through God's judgment is on the back of the righteous. Abraham couldn't walk this path himself. He couldn't muster up maybe the faith or the belief that God could go from 10 to 1. But here's the truth. The path through the mountain of God's judgment, because of the outcry, not just of two cities, but because of the outcry of the earth, was on the back of the righteous one. See, if Abraham would have said, God, would you save the whole city for just one righteous? You know what I believe that God's answer would have been? Yes. Because he values righteousness that much. It has that amount of power. And we know that because what does the gospel tell us? That the righteous one 
went to the cross to satisfy God's justice for sin. And God poured out his judgment on Jesus. Why? So that through faith, we would not receive the judgment of God. That God's justice is satisfied in Christ. That the power of Jesus' righteousness actually takes our record, which is unclean and broken and sinful and wicked. If we really are honest with ourselves, we're a mess. And yet, because of Jesus, the righteous one, on his back, we are made clean. We are made right. We are made good. See, God has been calling this out. Isaiah 46 says this, verse 4. God speaks to you and to me. He says, I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. He says, it's so important to understand that. What God is not saying is, I have made you, and I want to sustain you. I want to carry you. I want to rescue you, but you better get righteous. You better start working. You better start getting better. You better start praying more. You better start doing all the things you got to do, and then I'm going to sustain you, and then I'm going to rescue you, and then I'm going to carry you. No, 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 no. There is nothing before that. It's I've made you, and I will carry you. I will rescue you, and I will sustain you. How? Not on your back, on the back of the righteous one, Christ. On him alone. You don't have to be fearful of God's justice and God's judgment at all because of the power of the righteousness of Christ. And I want you to hear this. Listen, God has been saying this to this world since the very beginning of time. I like to call this inception in the Bible, okay? Are you ready? This is inception in the Bible, but it is unbelievably powerful and true. Genesis chapter five is one of these chapters that we have not read in this series, and if, you, if you've maybe started the Bible, I'm gonna read the Bible in a year, and you start at the very beginning, you get to Genesis chapter five, and it's one of these chapters, ready? It's like this. Okay, next chapter. You know why? It's a whole bunch of names. You ever been there? You read the Bible and you're like, what do I do with this? Here are the names. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you the names. Some of them you're like, okay, I've heard these before. Some of them are, are out there. We have Adam. Okay, we're cool with that. We have Seth. We have Enosh. We have Canaan. We have Mahala. We have Jared. We have Enoch. We have Methuselah. We have Lamech. And we have Noah. Ten names in Genesis chapter 5. There's some other descriptions there, but what that chapter is doing, it's kind of speeding up the story. It's taking all the generations from Adam to Noah. Ten names, flip through it. If you translate those names, each one, here's here's each name and what it means, okay? Adam's name means man. Seth is appointed. Enosh is mortal. Canaan is sorrow. Mahala is the blessed God. Jared's name means shall come down. Enoch's name means teaching. Methuselah is death shall bring. Lamech is the despairing. And Noah is rest. If you put all 10 of those names together, here's what it says in Genesis chapter 5. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest. Can you believe that? Genesis chapter 5. God has been saying, that we are appointed mortal sorrow. We're broken. We're sinful. It's grave. It's wicked. But the blessed God, Jesus, fully God and fully man, he came down, and what did he teach? That his death shall bring the despairing rest. God has been saying this 
since the beginning of time. Through the names constructed in Genesis chapter 5, and he says it to you and to me tonight. You don't have to be fearful of God's judgment. You don't have to be fearful of God upholding justice because he has already done so through Christ. Through his death, justice was satisfied and judgment was poured out. And you and me as the despairing, if we're honest with ourselves, can find rest in him. That is what God has been saying, that God has saved us from his judgment by his grace. See, justice rolls down, but grace rises up. There's no reason to feel attention because grace is ever before you. Christ has made a way. On his back, we are pulled through the mountain of God's judgment. And this is true not just for those of us in the room, but for every single person you know. Every person, God is, is, is screaming this out to this city, to your friends, to your family members, to every person you know. And, and here's what I want to ask of you tonight. I want you to receive this, and I want it to give you hope. I want it to give you strength. I want it to give you a, a new fervor and passion in your worship because God does not love you. He has not forgiven you. He's not sparing you because you've been working really hard and performing well for him. No, no, no. It's because of what Jesus has done for you. You are forgiven, and you can find rest in God. We live in a weary world where we have to work so hard to get the approval of others and to, and to gain and to move forward. And God says, listen, come find rest with me just by looking to the death of Jesus. Find rest for your soul. And then secondly, would you be like Abraham? Would you pray these prayers, these pleading prayers for your friends and your family member and, and come to them? Come to God and say, God, I, I want to go to you on behalf of this person. Will you reveal yourself to them? Will you reveal the power of your righteousness to them? They're forgiven, they're spared, not because they're righteous, but because you, Jesus, are righteous. Because here's the truth. God is not looking into the world looking for ten righteous. He's not. He's already provided the one righteous who saves the whole world. He's already provided the one. Rest in him. Advocate on behalf of others in his name. Amen? Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that we don't have to work to earn your love and your favor. We thank you that we don't have to perform for you in any way. We don't even have to be afraid, God, of of your justice, which requires judgment because you have satisfied it in Christ. Jesus, you are our Messiah, rescued us. Your grace is good. We are sustained in you. We are given life in you. God, the power of your righteousness, power of your goodness is absolutely true and it is far beyond what we can even come to understand. Would we taste now a moment, a glimpse of the full glory of your grace as we come to your table? Would you impress upon our heart and our mind and our soul that we are loved not because of what we do, but because of what you have done, Jesus, that you are not looking in this church for 10 righteous you are looking at a lot of people that are relying upon the one righteous Jesus. And in that we are saved. We are forgiven. We can find rest. 
Would we worship and live out of that spirit and that truth? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.